So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get into what God has for us today. Jesus, thank you for allowing us to be here, God. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it's alive and true, God, and that we can learn so much from it, God. You've given us the instructions of life and how to attain salvation through you, God. We just thank you so much that it's nothing that we have to do, Lord. It's all what you did. So I just pray if there's somebody here today, God, that hasn't accepted you, Lord, that they wouldn't leave today without accepting you as their Savior, God. And thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Yeah, so like I said, uh, Brian and Gina are gone this week, so we're going to take a little sidestep into the book of James. James is a very good book. It, um, Like I said, it has a lot into it. It's only five chapters long. Um, teaching youth, it allows me to break apart um, chapters into pieces and really expound on it a lot better. But since I don't do this very often, I'm just going to do the whole entire chapter two, and there's a lot to it. Um, so I'll try not to keep you guys too long today, but I really felt like what James chapter two has to offer, um, it, it would be very hard to be able to just break it up into one Sunday and you'd be like, okay, well, what's the rest of it? And then have to come back and not get to hear the rest of the message. So I'm just going to do it all today. So a brief introduction into James. James was the half-brother of Jesus. That doesn't mean that he was divine or anything like that. He just, they, they shared the same parents, but obviously Jesus was the one who was miraculously born into this world as our Savior. And this was the same James that in the book of John, chapter 7, that it says that for even his brothers did not believe him. This is a guy who, I mean, think about it. If you grew up, with your brother or your sister or whatever, and they claim to be the son of God, right? Uh, that'd be kind of hard to believe, right? Because you grew up with this person. You're like, are you really the son of God? No, you're my brother, right? Again, he's not divine or anything, but he, he was, he, he doubted Jesus's divinity over and over and over. This doubt is towards the end of Jesus's ministry, likely about six months before his crucifixion. And this, it, it, what's crazy about it is this doubt was even after Jesus healed a man who had been disabled for 38 years. He had fed 5,000 men with a boy's lunch, and he had walked on water. So this is a guy who doubted, even though he saw all these miracles over and over and over. And even after two years of miracles, James was a skeptic. It would be rather hard to swallow the idea that your brother you had grown up with was really the son of God. I mean, it's pretty understandable, right? Like, I would not believe that my brother was the son of God if he claimed to be. It would be kind of hard to believe. But 1 Corinthians 15, 7 specifically names James as one uh, to whom Jesus appeared after his resurrection. After seeing his dead brother walking and talking, James believes that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, sent to save people from their sins. Uh, a little fun fact about James, the Jewish historian Josephus nicknamed James Old Camel Knees because he had spent so much time on his knees praying that his knees looked calloused like a camel's knees. And I have to ask, is that what our prayer life looks like? This book deals with all sorts of issues ranging from persevering and loving God through trials, being doers of the word, not showing partiality, faith without works being dead, Taming your tongue, pride, and humility, to name a few. Some have considered this to be the Proverbs of the New Testament. So I encourage you guys, 
If you guys uh, don't have a Bible at home, we have plenty back there. Take one with you. Read the book of James when you get home. It's five chapters long. It should take you maybe 10 minutes. But there's so much into this book, um, which is I, I really like it. So we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 1. And it says this, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. This chapter and much of the book begins with James addressing it to the brethren, which shows that it is directed towards us. A lot of people look at the Bible and they're like, oh, well, you know, the Bible is, it was true then, but it, it doesn't really apply to us now. Well, I mean, God gave us his word for a reason, and we should most definitely apply it to our lives. I mean, it's, it, it has survived the test of time. It has survived persecution over and over and over. There's no reason to think that we can't apply this to our life. So partiality. At its foundation, partiality is contrary to and incompatible with the gospel. From the start of the Bible, we learn that man and woman are made in the image of God. So partiality is an attack of the image that is etched into every human who has been made in God's image. When we show partiality, we are showing that we don't truly understand the gospel. The message of the gospel is that Jesus has broken down every barrier, whether cultural, racial, economic, or religious. Jesus had proclaimed the message of salvation to all who will believe. Jesus himself became poor so that we could become rich. He reached through social barriers and rescued the weak and the lowly. And as we read the gospel, we find that sometimes those farthest away from the kingdom of God are often the most religious. And we have to remember that James wrote this to a very particular age filled with prejudice and hatred based on class, ethnicity, nationality, religious background. And in the ancient world, people would, were routinely and permanently categorized because they were Jew or Gentile, slave or free, rich or poor, Greek or barbarian, or whatever. But we also have to remember that this still applies to us even in this day and age. I mean, let's look at Oliver's, for instance. This is a town that a lot of people want to write off in their minds because of its economic level and its drug use history with some people, but does that mean that pe these people don't need Jesus just as much as we do? I believe these are the exact people that Jesus would want to hang around. You know, it's, I, I used, me and my wife used to live out here for many years, and this town definitely has a rap behind it about the kind of people that live out here. But I tell you what, after living out here for so many years, these are some of the nicest people I've ever met in my entire life. And I would hate for the gospel not to go somewhere because people want to show partiality. They want to, they, they would rather go serve the rich man instead of the poor man, right? But we all need Jesus. It doesn't matter where you're from, what you've done in your life. We all need Jesus. So verse 2 says, For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and a fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, You stand here or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So James now uses an example of two type of people that can come into a church body and how, well we, can, and how we can treat both of them. But let's look, use this as an example of life as well. How often are we treating people who look good and fine clothes and dress nicely compared to someone who doesn't look as wealthy? 
If we remember that the Bible speaks in Luke, Jesus said to them, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of God has nowhere to lay his head. You know, Jesus didn't have a home. Jesus slept wherever he went, and he went and preached to everybody. And it didn't, didn't, I mean, most, most people nowadays who don't have a home would be looked at differently. So, but if Jesus was here in this day and age, is that how we would view him? Would we look at Jesus the same way we do as the poor man? Because, I mean, I highly doubt Jesus walked around in rich clothes. But would we not go to try to serve him because of the way he looked? Or because he didn't have a home? An example of a couple things partiality can show. To show partiality shows that we care more for the outward appearance than we do upon the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. If God looks at our hearts, why do we not look at other people's hearts? We judge people before we even get to know them. We don't even go and approach people because of whether they're dressed a different way, whether they have tattoos. I mean, everybody needs Jesus. And I encourage you guys, God has placed in all of us who claim to be followers of Jesus, he's commanded all of us to go preach to everybody. And he didn't say, oh, go preach to these people, but, you know, somebody else will take care of these people. I mean, we're supposed to go preach to everybody, right? And when you really look at the ramifications of not having Jesus in your heart when you die, it's pretty scary. Like, I think about family members of mine who, who don't follow the Lord. And sometimes those are the hardest people to reach because they're your family, right? You grew up with them. And it's hard because you know that if they don't accept Jesus before they die, where they're going to go. And that scares me because I don't want my family members to be in hell. And we're not promised tomorrow. And it's just like anybody we can come across on a daily basis in the grocery store, at work, wherever we are. What's preventing us from going to share the gospel with others? It's like I tell my youth kids, it's like, it's like a doctor having the cure for cancer, right? We all have had people in our lives that have had cancer. It's a terrible disease, right? And it's like having a doctor have the cure for it, but keeping it to himself. That's terrible. I mean, we literally have the knowledge that can send people to heaven through Jesus Christ. We could share that love with them. We could share that message with them. We could share that with them so that when they die, they don't have to experience death the way we do. I mean, sorry, the, the way non-believers do, I'm sorry. But the point is, is how, how can we have this kind of information that can save souls and not want to share it with others? To show partiality also shows that we misunderstand who is important and blessed in the sight of God. When we assume that the rich man is more important to God or more blessed by God, we put too much value in material riches. And to show partiality also shows a selfish streak in us. Usually we favor the rich man over the poor man because we believe we can get more from the rich man. He can do favors for, 
favors for us that the poor man can't. You know, and it, it, it's not always easy talking to people, but God did promise that if we do what he calls us to do, he's going to be there right with us. I think we get in our own heads sometimes thinking, oh, well, you know, what if I just don't know what to say? God will give you the words to say. And people are reached in all different kinds of ways. Don't prevent yourself from sharing the one thing that can really save somebody's life because of fear. Fear can stop us from doing so many different things, but don't allow that fear to stop you from sharing the love of Jesus with somebody. And you know what? You also have to remember that if it's a fear of rejection, remember it's not you they're rejecting, it's Jesus they're rejecting. I mean, the, the word says that the world hated me first before it hated you. I mean, Jesus' own people are the one who put him on the cross. The people that he came to save. It's crazy how God designed everything to work. And when you really read the word book by book, it's like, it's like a big puzzle piece just being put together. And you're just like, why do I ever doubt? God is so good. Sure, bad things happen in life. It happens to everybody, but God's still good. Verse 5 says, Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you were called? So one reason why it's foolish to favor the rich is God has chosen the poor people of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. That's a promise for us, guys. If you have Jesus in your heart and you were to die right now, you're going straight to heaven and you're going to be heirs of the kingdom of heaven. That is a promise that God has given all of us. The poor are God's elect, God's elite, heirs of God and lovers of God. Repeatedly, we find in Scripture that it is the poor people, not the rich, who rally to the banner of Christ. A second reason why it's foolish to show deference to the rich is that as a class, they are the ones who have characteristically oppressed the people of God. John Calvin captured this argument perfectly when he said, Why would you honor your executioners? Why would you show favor to them, right? We look up to these people who are rich and famous, and we idolize these people. But where are their hearts at? So a third reason why it is foolish to be partial towards the rich is that they habitually use evil or harsh speech involving the name of Christ. This is the noble name by which believers are called Christians or followers of Christ, people who use slanderous words, of, uh, of, of using God's name in vain. These are the kind of people that we look up to. The people who, who would not care in the world if they died right now without Jesus. The ones who would rather take God's name and put it to shame because they think that they're high and mighty in status because maybe they have money or whatever. What? I mean, you're not taking that with you to the grave, so I don't see why that matters. But the, the point is, is, why do we idolize these people who would not think for a second of whether you died or not? 
I mean, as Christians, we want to see life in people. We want to see people, when they die, they go to heaven. So why should believers show special favoritism towards anyone simply because he is rich? The traits which accompany riches are not ordinarily honoring to the Lord Jesus. Jesus didn't call us to come and have a comfortable life down here. He didn't call us to be rich and famous and have all the glory on us. And in my eyes, it's just like the rich man and Jesus when he told him, you know, I've kept the law, I've done all these things. And Jesus looked at him and he said, go sell everything you have. And the Bible says that he walked away and he was sad because he knew that he did not want to give up everything that he had. There was things in his life that he didn't want to give up for Jesus Christ. And he knew that and that's why he was sad. Can God bless people? Sure. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of Christians out there who have plenty of money and plenty of things. But some, the problem is, though, is sometimes when you have that many riches, it's harder to realize your need for God. Because why would you need God if you have everything you want here? Sometimes I, as, as much debt that I've ever been in in my life, I've always been like, you know what, God, maybe you're keeping me here for a reason. Because if I didn't have any reason to need you, then why else would I come to you? And so it's cool that God allows these things in our, in our lives to happen so that we rely on him more. Too often we can get into the habit of doing things just to do them instead of realizing that it needs to be in God's strength and not my strength. Because if it's in my strength, I can't do any good. But if it's God moving through me, he can, he can do anything he wants through me. But I have to be submitted to God and allow him to do those things. So this doesn't mean that rich people, does this mean that rich people can't inherit the kingdom of heaven? Of course not. But I don't want us to think that they don't need Jesus just as much as we do. What this is talking about more is not showing partiality to these people. Just trying to show that we shouldn't show partiality with people who look rich over people who look poor. Because appearances can be deceiving. So I encourage you guys, when you're out and about, at work, wherever you go, if God's tugging on your heart to go reach somebody, I would listen. It's crazy. A few years back, I, uh, me and my wife, we were at the park down the road. We took our kids. And it was the weirdest thing. I, uh, I saw this guy and his family just kind of hanging out in the park. And I kept getting this tug on me. Go ask that guy what church he goes to. And I'm like, that's such a random question. Why would I go ask somebody what church they go to? Like, that's so weird. And I tried to ignore it. And I sat there, and he just kept tugging on my heart. Go ask that guy where he goes to church. And I was like, whatever. So I walk over there. I said, hey, man, how are you doing? You know, I said, my name's Clint. You know, where do you guys go to church? He goes, oh, that's crazy that you asked that. He's like, we actually just came back from the mission field from Mexico and we just literally came back a couple weeks ago, and uh, they, they were so shocked that somebody was asking that, and we're friends with them to this day because I had obeyed what God had told me to do. Such a random thing to go ask somebody. But they, they needed people in their lives. They needed friends. They needed other Christians to be surrounded by because they just came back from the mission field. And I'm so gl glad that I listened to that. And it's such a simple thing. Sometimes all it takes is just striking up a simple conversation with somebody. And then you're like, why was I worried to begin with? 
Why would I not obey God because of my own worry or my own fear? And I'm so glad that I did it. So I encourage you guys, there's people in your life that you feel like God is calling you to go reach. Rich or poor, do it. Allow God to use you to go reach people for his kingdom. I mean, how cool would it be if even just a simple gesture of saying, hey, how are you doing, sparked somebody's interest to be asking you, why are these people being nice to me? And that starts a conversation about Jesus Christ, and then, Lord willing, you see them in heaven one day because you obeyed what God had called you to do. That'd be the coolest thing in the world. So verse 8 says here, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin. You are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the whole law. So speak and do so as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So James now looks to the law to show why we shouldn't be showing partiality with people. We are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. If we are showing partiality, then how are we loving our neighbor as ourselves? The problem isn't that one is nice to the rich. The problem is that one does show partiality to the rich and is not nice to the poor man. So you can't excuse your partiality by saying, I'm just fulfilling the command to love my neighbor as myself. It doesn't work that way. James is reminding us that the poor man is just as much as our neighbor as the rich man is. And if we really loved our neighbors as ourselves, we would treat them all the way we would want to be treated. The golden rule, right? Certainly we would not want to be despised simply because we were poor. Then, should, then we should not show contempt to others for this reason. So of all the teachings of the Bible, this is certainly one of the most revolutionary. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Think about what this means. It means that we should care for others as we care for ourselves. We should be willing to share our material possessions to those who are not as privileged as we are. And above all, we should do all in our power to see that they have the opportunity to know the blessed Savior. Because why are we doing this unless it points them back to Jesus, right? We are self-centered people. We cater to the rich because of the hope of reward, either socially or materially. We neglect the poor because there is little prospect of their benefiting us in this way. The royal law forbids such selfish, selfish exploitation of others. It teaches us to love our neighbors as ourselves. He then goes on to say that we cannot just keep one part of the law either. We can't say, I like God's command against murder, so I'll keep that one but I don't like his command against adultery, so I will disregard it. God cares about the whole entire law. The whole law must be kept if one is to be justified by the law. So we're not, I want to preface this as well, we're not saved by the law, we're saved by grace through faith. But the people that he was speaking to specifically based their entire belief on the law. Okay, so he's saying that 
if you're going to try to use the law as a reason why you're doing this, well, then you have to follow the entire thing. You can't just pick and choose what you want to follow. Because we don't do that, right? We don't sit there and go, oh, well, I'll talk back to my parents, but murder's not, that's no, we won't do that. I mean, they're both in the commandments. So if we're going to use the commandments, we've got to follow every single one of them. And the reason why God has them there is to give us a standard, right? But it's by grace that we've been saved through faith. Jesus did the work on the cross for us. So, But what James is saying as believers is you are no longer under the law of bondage. You are under the law of liberty. Liberty to do what is right. The law of Moses required you to love your neighbor, but did not give you the power and condemned you if you failed. That was the problem with the law is it set a standard. It didn't give you the power to do it, but every time you failed, you were condemned for it. The Bible says that those who follow Christ, are, we don't live under condemnation. It says that in Romans. Under grace, you are given the power to love your neighbor and are rewarded when you do it. You don't do it in order to love your neighbor. Oh, I'm sorry. You don't do it in order to be saved, but because you are saved. Think about that for a second. Grace gives us the power to love our neighbor, and we're not doing it to be saved, but because we are saved. Right? God has given us this grace. We should be gracious to give it to others. You do it not through fear of punishment, but, be, but through love for him who died for you and rose again. Remember, when we're doing these things, it's all for God's glory, not us. I would never want to come here and you guys see me up here preaching. I want it to be God speaking through me because I want it to glorify God, not me. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. God gave us mercy and we should show mercy to others. You know, it's, it's like I said a second ago, if we're grateful for the grace that has been given to us, we should be gracious to give it to others. God has given me a life. From the life that I lived prior to Jesus to the life that I have now, it's only because of God's grace that I'm standing here today. And I owe God my life to share his word with others because he has transformed my life so much that I want to see him do that to other people as well. It's such an amazing thing when God can take somebody who is broken and as bitter as I was to, to have me in a place of joy and happiness and love. It's a, it's a complete opposite, a complete 180 for me. But I'm so grateful for that. I want to see that done in other people's lives as well. It's an amazing thing. So now we're going to get into this second section of Scripture. And it, it really does tie together with the first part, which is why I wanted to read all of it. And this is a, I wouldn't say a controversial passage of Scripture, but people have just misunderstood it. So we're going to start in verse 14. And it says here, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? James thought it was impossible that someone could genuinely have saving faith with no works. Someone could say he has faith but failed to show good works. So the question is valid. Can that faith kind of faith save him? 
James is describing the man who has nothing but a profession of faith. He says he has faith, but there is nothing about his life that indicates it. He's speaking about a say-so faith that is not backed up by good works. Such a faith is worth, worthless. It is all words and nothing else, right? It's like, it's like if I kept telling my kids, I'm going to give them $10, and I don't ever give them $10, well, then they're going to just think that my words are worthless eventually because they're like, well, yeah, you're just lying to me at this point. James also was not contradicting Paul, who insisted that we are not saved, I mean, I'm sorry, that we are saved not of works. James clarifies for us that this kind of faith, clarifies for us the kind of faith that saves. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works. But saving faith will have works that accompany it. As the saying goes, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. It has good works with it. So verse 15, it says, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, then what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now he shows us an example how this can look in our lives. So if we see a brother or sister in need, or anyone else for that matter, does it do any good just to talk about it? For instance, I myself have wondered why I'm so quick to help a family member or someone in the church or a coworker, but if I see someone on the street, I'm a little hesitant, right? We've all, th we've all thought that. You're just, nah, I'll help this person, but I won't help that person. I'm not saying that we can't have discernment with people. And Jesus himself didn't go and help every single person that was sick, but it does make you stop and question whether you have the right motives. And what I mean by that is it reminded me of the, the story of the, uh, the pool of Bethesda where you have all these sick people and uh, they, the, the theory was that if you had an ailment or a sickness or something and you can get down to the pool once the water started bubbling, then you were going to be healed of your infirmity, right? And so Jesus comes in and he sees this man who had been paralyzed for 38 years and Jesus goes to this one single person, even though there's probably hundreds of people who are sick and have infirmities in their life, but he went to this one single person and he helped them. Could Jesus, could Jesus have helped them all? Sure. But Jesus was focusing on that one person. And I think that we need to allow Jesus to work in our lives to the extent of giving him opportunity to reach people wherever we go, whether the people are on the street or whether they're our friends, our families, our neighbors, whoever it may be. God will place people in your lives so that you can reach them. And what's cool about it is sometimes it's as simple as giving somebody a meal. Sometimes it's just being nice to somebody. But the point is, is allowing yourself to be submitted to God in such a way that whoever comes across your life, you can reach them for it. So James is not saying that we are saved by faith plus works. To hold this view would be a dishonor to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we were saved by faith plus works, then there would be two saviors, Jesus and ourselves. But the New Testament is very clear that Christ is the one and only Savior what James is emphasizing is that we are not saved by faith of words, only by 
that kind of faith which results in a life of good works. In other words, works are not the root of salvation, but they are the fruit. They are not the cause, but the effect, right? Jesus comes into our life, right? Kind of like he did with me. I'm not up here teaching because I'm like, well, I have to do this in order to be saved. No, I've, I've submitted myself under God where he's allowed me to do the things that he's called me to do. And it's because I want to, because I, I have such a desire to see other people get saved as well. I'm not doing it because I feel like it's going to earn me some extra spot in heaven or something. So right here where it says, hold on. In verse 17, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This is the first time James speaks of a dead faith. Faith alone saves us, but it must be a living faith. We can tell if faith is alive by seeing that if it is accompanied by works, and if it does not have works, it is dead. A living faith is simply real faith. If we really believe something, we will follow through and act upon it. If we really put our trust and faith on Jesus, we will care for the naked and destitute as he told us to. Right? So is, have you allowed God to come into your life and move in such a way where you're doing these things because you want to? You want to see others. Or are you doing it because you feel like, well, I, I feel like this is going to get me some higher spot in heaven. There's many religions out there, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, who claim that you have to do works in order to get into heaven. And they use this very scripture to try to say so. But, the, but like I said a second ago, the bad thing about living that kind of life is that you're putting yourself on the same pedestal as Jesus. Because you're saying, well, I know Jesus died for my sins, but I have to be right up there with him doing works in order to show that I'm worthy. No, no, no. Jesus is the only one who saved us. And if you put your faith in him, he's going to call you to do many things that you may even feel uncomfortable doing. You know, it's not always comfortable talking to people about Jesus because of fear, because we feel like people are going to reject us. But like I said, if you submit yourself to God and allow him to do the work, it's such a beautiful thing of what he can do in your life and other people's lives through you. I mean, I, I, I love the type of job that I have. I drive a truck for Coca-Cola, and I'm a, I come across new people every single entire day. And I get the opportunity to talk to them. I could share the word of Jesus with them. And sometimes it's simply just being nice to somebody. I had somebody tell me a long time ago they were in a really bad mood and I was working and they said that I had an infectious smile and it really just turned their whole entire day around. Are we allowing God to do that in our lives where we can reach people no matter where we go, whether it's at work or school or church? I mean, this is the place where we come to learn about Jesus so that we could take this knowledge and once we leave these doors, go reach others. This is, this is when, you, when you leave those doors, I love it when how some churches have above their door frame, you are now entering the mission field. And that's true. That should be true in all of our lives, where we've allowed Jesus to come in our lives and move so much that once we leave these doors, we can't wait to go tell others about him. Are we that excited that we are saved because of what Jesus did for us on the cross? Or are we just going to tuck it away and keep it to ourselves? 
Verse 18 says, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Some might try to say, some might try to say that some have the gift of works and others have the gift of faith. It's fine for you to have your gift of works and that you care for the needy, but that isn't my gift. James will not allow this kind of thinking. Real faith will be demonstrated by your works. The appeal of James is clear and logical. We can't see someone's faith, but we could see their works. You can't see faith without works, but you can demonstrate the reality of faith by works. And that's the cool thing about it is how would somebody know that you're a Christian unless they saw you in action, right? Think about that for a second. If we claim to be followers of Christ, but all we do is just sit at home and keep it to ourselves, well, how is your neighbor going to know you're a Christian? How is anybody, for that matter, going to know? It's by what we're doing because of what God has done through us that shows people, you know what, there's something different about that person, and I'd like to find out what it is. God should be filling your lives so much that people can't help but look at you and go, I really want some of that. Because what does this world have to offer? Nothing. God has so much to offer that we should be so overjoyed by what he's doing in our lives that people just have to have some of it themselves. And it's by showing them by what we're doing instead of just sitting on our thumbs doing nothing right? If, like I said, if you have been so transformed by what Jesus has done in your life, wouldn't you want to see that happen in others? I mean, I do. So it talks about here about the demons believing and they tremble, right? The demons believe in the sense that they acknowledge that God exists, but this kind of faith does nothing for the demons, right? They have faith that God's there, right? But that doesn't save them because it's not a real faith. And that is proved by the fact that it doesn't have any works alongside with it. When a person truly believes on the Lord, it involves a commitment of spirit, soul, and body. And this commitment, in turn, results in a changed life. Right? Like, nobody would think that I was a Christian, right? Nobody would think that I was following the Lord if when we walked out that door, I'm sitting there doing drugs, and I'm doing all these other things. I'm going and doing these crimes, and I'm just acting a muck, right? You would not think for a minute that I was a Christian at all if you saw me acting like that out there. But it's because of what I'm doing. I'm trying to reach people. I'm trying to raise my children to be followers of God. And sometimes that's the hardest because when you're at home and your kids are disobeying you, <laughs> you get angry. And then they start questioning you. Are you really acting like Jesus right now, Dad? No, I'm not always acting like Jesus, kids. It's a daily taking up the cross, kids. <laughs> Sometimes an hour by hour. No, I love my kids to death. And my, my prayer is that I can show them a life that is so transformed by what Jesus has done in me that when they grow up, they want to do the same exact thing. That's my prayer. I mean, I would not wish anything else for anything else to happen to my kids except that they follow the lord that's it 
I don't care if they're homeless. I don't care if they're rich. I don't care what happens to them as long as they're following the Lord. That's what I care about. Because I know that there's nothing that this world can offer them that's going to bring them any kind of satisfaction or life that Jesus can. So, verse 21, he says here, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled when he said, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. James now uses the Old Testament to demonstrate what he has already said about the character of a living faith, showing that a faith that is not accompanied with works is dead and it cannot save. So in Genesis 15, there's a story where um, God called Abraham to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice um, but just know that God wasn't actually calling him to go kill his son. It was actually a prophetic um, for, is it foretelling of what God would actually do for us with his own son on the cross, right? And so it was a test of faith for Abraham that he knows that he can trust God no matter what because they get up on the mountain, he goes to prepare everything, and he's about to do it, and God tells him to stop, and he actually provided a sacrifice for him, and he showed him that because of this, you know that you can trust me now. And it was a test for Abraham to know that he can trust in, G in God no matter what. But his obedience in offering Isaac demonstrated that he really did trust God. Abraham was going to do it regardless because he knew that he could trust God so much that he would give up his own son for it. And like I said, it was actually showing us what God would actually do with his own son because God would not call him to kill his own son. It's not in his character. Faith and works cooperated perfectly together in Abraham. If he never had believed God, he could have never done the good work of obedience when he was asked to offer Isaac. As well, his faith was proven true and it was completed, made perfect by his obedient works. It was what he did to show his faith in Jesus and God. Also, it talks about in, uh, Rahab, and that's in the book of Joshua. And she demonstrated her trust in the God of Israel by hiding the spies and seeking salvation from their God. So uh, in the Old Testament, they had, um, before they had gone to the promised land, they had to go through um, Jericho. And so they, spent, they sent spies out and uh, they, they went to Jericho and Rahab the harlot, had protected these people from getting caught by, you know, the, the leaders of Jericho and it hid them because she had heard about what God had done for these people. He, she had heard that um, they had crossed over to the Red Sea and how God had delivered them from Egypt. And because of her faith in that, it's what's crazy is actually if you look in, I think it's in Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Rahab is listed there as part of Jesus' genealogy. But her faith was shown to be living faith because it did something. Her belief in God would not have saved her if she had not done something with that faith. And like I said, she ended up being 
an ancestor of Jesus Christ. So as much as you can have a body with no life, so you can have a faith with no life. And faith without works is a dead faith, and it's unable to save you. Right? You can't, you can't just walk the walk. You have to talk the talk. Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, James compares faith to the human body. He likens works to the spirit. The body without the spirit is lifeless, useless, and valueless. So faith without works is dead, ineffective, and worthless. Obviously, it is a spurious faith, not genuine saving faith. So I want to summarize it this then. James tests our faith by answering, by our answers to the following questions. Am I willing, like Abraham, to offer the dearest thing in my life to God? And am I willing, like Rahab, to turn traitor to the world in order to be loyal to Christ? So I want to encourage you guys. Is that where your faith is today? Is your faith the kind of faith that when you see somebody who is in need, are you willing to go do something about it? Or is the kind of faith that you have something that you want to just bottle up and keep to yourself? I want to encourage you guys to pour in to God. Allow Him to do the works in you. Allow Him to move through you. And you would not believe how many lives you could possibly change by allowing God to move through you. But you have to be willing. So the question is, are you willing to allow God to move like that in your life? Sometimes it could be scary. Sometimes we can let fear stop us from doing these things. But I would encourage you guys, don't let that fear stop you. Sometimes God will ask us to do things. Like I said, when I talked to my friend, I was like, why would I go talk to this guy and ask him what church he goes to? But because I obeyed God, I have a wonderful friendship with him now. What, what kind of things could God have in store for your life because of your obedience and you acting upon your faith in him? There's countless people that we could reach. You know what I mean? So I want to ask you guys, get in, get in your words Pray to God and ask him, is there somebody or multiple people in my life that you're wanting me to reach? Am I called to do something more than I'm already doing? So let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for doing the work for us, God. Thank you that you came and you died on the cross for our sins, Lord. And I just, I thank you so much that we can trust you with all of our lives, Lord. I pray that you would give us all opportunity to reach other people, Lord. I pray that you would give us boldness to speak to everybody we come across about you. Lord, you are the only one that should be honored and praised. And I just pray that for everybody in here, Lord, that they would be so moved by what you've done in their lives that they would want to see that for other people. We thank you, Jesus, for giving us salvation, that when we die, we get to have eternity with you. So, Lord, I just pray that if there's someone here that has been on the, the fence about reaching others, Lord, that you would just give them boldness. Lord, take away that fear and just let your glory shine through those situations, God. We just thank you for allowing us to be here, God. We pray these things in your heavenly name. Amen.